You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. I've been out for a few days. I actually was on a little retreat and then in Oklahoma, in Norman, Oklahoma for a couple of days, doing some work with our Community Action Lab program there. I just got back into the office and I come across this newspaper article sitting on my desk. Strong Towns Consultant says property owners should be able to build what works best for them. Uh, This comes out of Medicine Hat. I don't know the exact publication, but the Medicine Hat News. All right, there we go. The Medicine Hat News. Let me start out with this because this whole thing irritates me in many ways, but we're going to, we're going to try to give this the, the kindest review and approach that we can or the most empathetic one that we can. I recognize that being a reporter is really hard. I recognize that being a local reporter is really hard. And let me say this in a way that is not just patronizing. My wife is a reporter. My wife and I were married back in 1995. That year, she went to work for the Pine River Journal, which was a small little weekly newspaper up in Pine River, Minnesota. After a couple of years there, she moved to the St. Cloud Times, which was a Gannett own newspaper out of St. Cloud, Minnesota, much, much larger distribution, daily newspaper. She did reporting on local government, on environment. She went down and worked at the legislature for a couple of years. Uh, she did a lot of different things there. About six years ago, she moved to a, a new position at Minnesota Public Radio. And there has been doing radio journalism for many years. I know there's a lot of people who are listening from Minnesota that hear her on the radio regularly. Some of you catch national public radio and you'll hear her every now and then. They'll pick up a piece from Minnesota. I'm very intimate with what journalists go through. And let me say this as well. I'm very intimate with the critiques that people have of journalism and how often unfair they can be, particularly to local journalists. When we, we look at journalists, you know, at the national level and we look at them involved in politics and big issues and what have you, it's, yeah, everybody's got their favorite angle. Everybody's got their favorite network, their favorite publication, the one that reflects their values, their approach, their framing. You look at the other one and you're like, oh, they're just out for, they're just out for clicks or they're just out for eyeballs or they're just out for ratings or they're doing this to pander for this audience or that, or they do it because they're owned by this oligarch or that oligarch or this corporation or that corporation. I get all those criticisms. I also get the reaction from within the newsroom, which is we do news There's a line between us and the editorial department. We don't do that. We don't do advertising. There's a wall between us and the advertising people. I get all of that. And I know it is really, really hard to be a local journalist. It's particularly hard today because local journalism is so underfunded. And to actually dig into something and write a good article and and take the time and the research to really get into things, it's very hard to do. It's very difficult to do particularly with the timeframes, the amount of turnover you have, the the volume of articles you need to produce, and just the lack of, of budget you have to do some of these things. It makes it really hard to be a local journalist. All right. <laughs> that all being said, 
it makes me so frustrated, so ridiculously frustrated when not only is our message kind of reduced in a reductive kind of way to what I'm just going to call like the macro talking points or the big, the big talking points that make it easy to write an article. But so much of the essence of what we're actually trying to say, what we're actually trying to do, and what we're not shy about. I mean, it's not like we're coy about this. It's not like there's a, a deep amount of nuance is stripped out in favor of something that comes across as mere clickbait. Let me read a little bit from this article. And then we're going to, again, I think give it the best framing that we can, and then talk a little bit about a different way to approach this. So Strong Towns Consultant, and right away, I get why the word consultant is used here. We say like every time we're not doing consulting, it says in our contract, we're not a consultant. We're not doing consulting work, but I, I get it. Like it's the way journalists are going to write this. All right. Strong Towns Consultant says property owners should be able to build what works best for them. Let me just go through the first few paragraphs of this. City Hall is examining how to better informed hatters, which is their little way of talking to people who live in Medicine Hat. It's kind of cute. I like it. To better inform hatters when neighboring properties are redeveloped. But a city consultant argues that such changes should proceed as a matter of right without weight given to adjacent landowners' input. And matter of right is in quotation marks. Strong Towns is a process paid for by the city in which urban development can play a key role to rebalance a city's finances by efficiently growing the tax base. I hate that whole sentence. And I don't think it's very accurate, but whatever. Let's, let's go with it. Essentially, red flag, essentially, that involves channeling tax assessment boosting projects into established neighborhoods without adding road pipes or services like transit. Again, I feel like this is maybe like technically accurate, but what a weird way to say something that is actually very simple. I digress. Let me keep going. In June, Strong Towns consultations discussed progressive development in several public meetings with presenters stating their preference that development rules give quote again, by right, the ability of owners to expand buildings or demolish and build to a higher use. The speaker told an audience that so-called upzoning should be allowed as a standard practice without hearings or the ability of neighbors to insert arguments about neighborhood preservation. I'm just going to stop right there because, ah, this entire framing, this entire way of hearing and then regurgitating what the very extensive and numerous, I mean, as I say, numerous consultations, the numerous like public dialogues we had on this, this is one way of framing those. And I want to try to understand this way of framing it before I give you a, a different way of framing it, a different way of, of talking about it. This way of framing it is citizen versus developer. And citizen versus developer, if we want to be cynical, that makes for really good clickbait. It makes for a really good article. It makes for attention, a good plot line. Citizens versus developers, we're going to fight it out at the city council meeting, at the planning commission meeting. There's a hearing and a process. And this consultant wants to take that power away from you so that citizens will be defenseless against developers. Let me say, first of all, that I understand where that comes from. 
I understand where that framing comes from, even outside of the whole clickbait. This makes for good journalism. This will get people reading my articles. This will get eyeballs, cynicism kind of reaction to that. If we strip that out and take that away and say, what, what would be a genuine motivation here for framing something that way? That is a framing that naturally arises from our current development pattern, which in a lot of cases is citizen versus developer. And let me add a couple adjectives to that. Local citizen versus outside developer. And let me add a couple more adjectives to that. Local citizen against outside developer with a lot of top-down finance backing them up. So this is a framing that we kind of all experience. It's a framing very familiar to anyone in the development industry. It's familiar framing to any urban planner who works for a city. Anyone who is active in local city politics will see the developer come in with the, the big project, the big flashy thing. We're going to tear this down. We're going to redevelop it. We want tax financing subsidies. We want that subsidy. We want this waiver from the code or what have you. We're going to build this thing. And yes, we got to go to a public hearing. We got to cringe when the public comes up and says, what about parking? What about neighborhood character? What about the historic preservation? What about, what about, what about do an environmental review, do this. And it, it becomes this battle between David and Goliath, right? David being the poor citizen who's having their neighborhood transform and being run over and Goliath being the big developer outside the community. What we often see in these instances is that elected officials, city councils get put in the middle, right? The process that we have set up has a public engagement component where we invite the public to come in, uh, state their peace, talk about things, bring up issues, and then public officials weigh all of this and, and have to make a decision. Oftentimes the decision is, you know, do we follow the code that we've written and give this developer the thing that they are asking for, or do we not follow the code that we've written and in a sense acquiesce or work with the concerns of citizens, often which are unreasonable, but often which are very, very reasonable. There's a anti-NIMBY conversation that is very strong within the urbanist movement, let's just say. You know, there's the not in my backyard kind of pejorative that we throw out there every time someone shows at a meeting, up at a meeting and suggests that, oh, there won't be enough parking if we do this. Um, this will change the character of my neighborhood. And, and there's a group of people that look at that reaction with scorn, right? Oh, those are, those are NIMBYs. Oh, listen to Karen stand up. Okay, boomer, go ahead. And there's a, there's a certain level of just scorn, I think is the right word. It's a pejorative, right? The NIMBYs, we don't like them. And in fact, there's a, a, a YIMBY movement, a yes in my backyard kind of counter reaction to the, the NIMBY movement that a lot of people ascribe to and say, you know, I'm part of this. I actually feel myself many, many years ago, part of the YIMBY conversation. How do we say yes to things? I found myself a little distant from some of the, uh, the radical YIMBYs who are say yes to everything at all times. I want to take a moment here and do something that I, I've done a couple times before in a couple different forums, and that is to defend the NIMBY point of view. Often 
What we see going on today in the citizen versus developer debate is a function of the way we finance development, the way we zone development, the way we approve and, and consider uh, new development proposals. We could do hours and hours on this. I'm going to oversimplify for the sake of this conversation. What that looks like is this. We, through zoning, lock the entire city into some type of stasis. Then through finance, we pump large amounts of money into the system and really increase the price and the underlying tension of affordability throughout the community. When those two things get into tension with each other, this idea of imposed stasis and imposed stasis recognize also is a form of imposed decline, right? Like if you can't in a natural system renew and improve, you put a cap on the development potential of a place, the renewal potential of a place. And what we see seep in over time is a certain level of decline. You take this artificially imposed stasis and decline and you juxtapose that with this pipeline of capital into a community and you get this underlying tension of affordability. In the poorest cities, we see affordable housing problems. In the richest cities, we see affordable housing problems. In cities that are growing really, really fast, we see affordable housing problems. In cities that are growing really slow, we see affordable housing problems. In cities where you are building a lot of new units, continually out there building, grow, 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 we see affordable housing problems where you have cities where they're very reactionary and very anti-growth and very nimby and try to stop growth. We see affordable housing problems. The underlying kind of thing that ties all this together is a zoning pattern that enforces a certain level of stasis combined with a top-down financial system that needs housing prices to go up in order to continue to survive, continue to exist, continue to, to move on. In Norman, Oklahoma, I said yesterday in a talk I gave there, if housing prices went down 50%, they would historically still be above what would be considered affordable for people, but the entire market would be trashed, right? Like we would not have a financial market. Housing prices can't go down to affordable levels. In today's price difference, without wreaking havoc on our financial system. And so this tension manifests in lots where large leaps are proposed. And that's kind of an awkward way of, of saying, I, I'm, I'm going to try to say this with a little bit more clarity. When everything is locked into stasis and there's all this finance being pushed in the system, the way that that tension is released is with large leaps in development pattern here and there. You can go to many, many, many North American cities today that are experiencing this. And what you'll see is this kind of disorienting development pattern where you see decline, 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 houses in stasis, neighborhoods, and then all of a sudden like five-story apartment building. You'll see single-family home, single-family home, uh, six-story condo unit in this kind of weird space with architecture and things that that like don't really fit in and don't really reflect. This is the tension being released slightly here or here or here in kind of random places. And what we tend to see is that because this, this system drives up property values artificially outside of normal market constraints in response to macro market incentives, 
what happens is that when the developers come in with this large outside capital, the only thing that they can do financially winds up to be a very big project. And the only thing that is worth the return on your time and energy, and and as my friend John Anderson likes to say, the re, the return on brain damage that comes through the development process is to do a very large development. And so what tends to happen is this stasis works itself out in a citizen versus developer platform where we're trying to do very large leaps, very large changes in the development pattern. Let me read from this article because this article kind of alludes to the way this has worked out in Medicine Hat and this reporter listening to what we were saying and interpreting it in kind of a local lens, a local prism saying, we've seen this before. These outside consultants are coming in and telling us what to do. And they're telling us to do something that we were already doing. We've already done. So here's from the article. This is quoting a council member. We can put up high rises all we want, but the reality is that people in the community aren't happy and we don't have happy communities said Councillor Sheila Sharps after the meeting. We need to be more able to pivot for developers, but we also have to be conscientious. When we made the change, and this was a change in the zoning code that allowed some of this you know, stuff. When we made the change, we didn't acknowledge that they could throw up a high rise here and there. If we know A could affect B, then let's be honest about what B is and make sure everyone knows. So, Again, here, we're getting to this framing of citizen versus developer with the council as kind of the arbitrator in the middle. And the reporter is suggesting that, you know, strong towns, the outside consultant is coming in and saying we should loosen up the zoning code and let developers do what they want. And you've got a council member now saying, well, you know, we, we did that before. We tried that before. We went down that path before and uh, we made a change that we thought was nice and innocent. But wow, there's this big loophole now being exploited and, and, and we don't want that. People showed up. They're not happy. Citizens showed up in citizen versus developer. People are not happy. They don't want to see this. And we got to be very, very careful if we're going to go down this path again. This seems to be what the reporter is also suggesting. This article has throughout over and over and over many different things saying, why are we even talking about this? Why do we even need to do this? We've already done this. The city of Medicine Hat has already done these changes. Here's a, here's a quote. Many of the Strongtown suggestions, like providing flexibility on setbacks and other requirements, are already part of a policy and practice at the city's planning department. So why do we even need this? Why are we even talking about this? That one is factually wrong. I mean, we actually never talked about setback requirements, but let's go along with this for a second. Let me talk about the way we talked about it in Medicine Hat. And let me talk about it the way that we talk about it always at Strong Towns. Because our framing is not citizens versus developers. Our framing is citizens as developers. We're not trying to create a process where you have local citizens fighting against outside developers with outside capital wanting to reshape the community and how much should we allow staff to decide and how much should be by right and how much can this outside developer come in and exploit the community. That's a bizarre framing. It's not something we've ever suggested. It's not something we believe. It's not something we think. It's not something that we've promoted. It's a really bad idea. In fact, in every presentation that I have given, I have said in language that is very clear that that is the exact opposite of what needs to happen. What needs to happen is not citizen versus developer. What needs to happen is citizen as developer. 
What we need is cities built by many, many hands. In all the talks that I've given and everywhere where I've had slides and everywhere where anyone on our team has been there and had slides and anywhere where we've talked about these issues with any substance, we've used two different phrases to talk about this specific issue. Phrasing number one is we need to lower the bar of entry. Right now, development is something that you have to be an outside developer to do. You have to have outside capital. You have to have outside money. You have to be a big player. And while there are certainly people who live within the community who do developments, do large developments, they are leveraging and they are utilizing outside capital. They are operating at a scale and a framework that is out of proportion from what most citizen developers, incremental developers would be doing within the community. And so the framing of citizen as developer, lowering the bar of entry denotes a different scale of development. I give an example of this uh, in every presentation that I, I give. And it is the example of the starter home. I put a picture up and I show it this smaller little house. And I say, in, in my town, we call these tiny homes. Our ancestors would have called these homes. Joe Minicosi has a great way of framing this. Uh, he will say, uh, who here would like to live in a 400 square foot home? And like very few people raise their hands. And then they'll say, who here has ever lived in a 400 square foot home? And all kinds of hands go up and everybody kind of laughs and starts to get the point, right? The starter home is the, the base unit that we all kind of have gone through and lived in. It's the small little place and it is the building block of a city. When we look back at what has happened post-World War II in housing, one of the things we've done is for very, I think, compassionate reasons, for very moral reasons, for reasons that are explainable without trying to question people's motives, we raise the bar of entry into the housing market. If you want to build today, you need to be able to get a long-term mortgage. To get a long-term mortgage, you need a certain level of affluence. You need a certain level of career. You need a certain level of uh, earnings. You need a certain history of earnings. All of these things are things that you did not need a hundred years ago to get into a home. I, I will say many times, a hundred years ago, if we went back and looked at housing, housing was abundant, it was affordable, and it was really, really poor in terms of its quality. Today, housing is generally much higher quality. And I know people argue with me about that, but my gosh, go back and read some of the stories about what housing quality used to be like. Housing quality today is much, much, much higher, but it is unaffordable and it is more rare, is scarcer than it used to be as a percentage of our overall population. One of the casualties of this shift, of this change in approach has been that we've eliminated the starter home. What is the starter home? The starter home is a small, cheap little box that you put up in a, you know, very kind of uh, bootstrapping kind of fashion. It's the quintessential home. You, you, you see these things I wrote about seeing them in the ruins of Pompeii. You see them in, in every city that was ever founded before the Great Depression. And you can pick them out even in mature neighborhoods because when you build a little 400, 500, 600 square foot home, you have a very small living space. 
a kitchen living room combo, a little bedroom, a little bathroom. These are small little places. But oftentimes, even in mature neighborhoods, you can spot them because they've been added onto, right? That's where you start. That's the starter home. Now you've got a second story. Now you've got a, a, an addition on the back. There's a certain social aspect of this where you know, neighbors help neighbors do little additions. You're able to save up a little bit of money. Maybe you get a, a, a raise at work or a little bonus or what have you. You're able to, to make this work. We've wiped this out in the market today. Our large developers don't deliver this product. This product requires a level of nuance, a level of citizen as developer, right? In order to be able to pull this off, it's very hard to do this at scale as a big developer because they, you know, you, you don't go out and make a subdivision of tiny homes. There have been people who've done this. They generally fail. It's not a very good strategy. Where you fit tiny homes is, is in little spots within a neighborhood that requires nuance, that requires bottom up, that requires, you know, incremental citizen as developer. The other example that I point out, and I, I don't point this out during my talks often, but during Q and A's and discussion, as we're talking about what development looks like in a bottom up way, in a citizen as developer kind of way, uh, is uh, this idea of the single person household. If we go back even 50 years, household sizes were, you know, like 2.6, 2.7 people per household. And that's now somewhere down around like 2.1 here in North America. In some places, it's even lower. Uh, I've seen it as low as like 1.7 in some cities and some places. What that means is that most houses or many, many homes are occupied by one person. I want you to put in your mind the widow or the widower who had a, a family, needed a large home for a part of their life, has stayed in a neighborhood, has now lost their spouse uh, for whatever whatever reason, and is living in a home by themselves that is way too big for their needs. They're in a neighborhood of similar homes. They would like to stay in this neighborhood. They have friends in this neighborhood. They have deep roots in this neighborhood. They, they like their home. They like their place. They're, they're attached to it. I think we can all relate to that feeling to one degree or another. Maybe their church or their synagogue is in this neighborhood. Maybe, uh, you know, a group that they like to get together with is in this neighborhood. For whatever reason, they're rooted here. They want to stay here. And, and we as, you know, local governments, as, as people in a community should, should want them to stay in a place that they want to stay in, but they have too much house. Maybe the roof has gone bad and they need to fix the roof, but they're now on a fixed income and they, they just don't have the capacity to do that. Maybe they're a little bit elderly and they can't shovel the sidewalks in the winter when it snows when they need to, or they, they can't maintain the yard the way they'd like to. Citizen as developer looks like this person being allowed to take one of those spare bedrooms, create an outside egress door to it, put a little kitchenette in it, and have an efficiency apartment. That's what it looks like. And then being able to take the revenue from that and fix their roof and stay in their house or hire someone to shovel their sidewalks and stay in their house or have a, a relationship with someone who moves in who is able to do the yard work for them or check up on them once a day and, and, and call the doctor if they're not doing well. These are all humane, decent, moral things 
that civilizations throughout human history did as just a, a course of doing business that we've taken off the table for people today. We've said, you're, you're not allowed to do this. That you're not able to do this because of zoning. You're not able to do this because the, the finances are too out of alignment. You can only do this if you're a large developer coming in. And then why would you do it? Because there's more profit to be made in other places, especially when you think about your return on brain damage. We've taken these options out of the marketplace. And when we are talking about making things available by right, we are talking about this style of citizen as developer. It's not saying developer versus citizen, let's take the arbiter out of the process, the city council, and just give big outside developers a free-for-all. I know that's what a local reporter might like to write. I know that's what they might hear given the past local context, but they're not trying very hard if that's what they're hearing us say, because we've never said anything remotely like that. We've talked about always citizen as developer, a city built by many hands, a way to take the existing framework that we have and thicken it up over time by empowering people to do things that they're not allowed to do today. Here's the second slide that we've shown. And the second way we talk about this, and we always talk about it in this way. So if you are a reporter who are listening to us, if you are there in a room trying to understand what we're talking about and the, you know, consultation we're having with the city, what we always say is that the standard we should have for incremental development is this. No neighborhood should experience radical change, but no neighborhood can be exempt from change. No neighborhood should experience radical change. I talk about this in terms of the person living in the neighborhood, leaving for a while and then coming back. If a person lives in a neighborhood, I grew up in this neighborhood and I'm going to leave and I'm going to go away for five years, for 10 years, and then I'm going to come back to the same neighborhood. That neighborhood should not have undergone radical change. It should not be unrecognizable for me. When you think about a neighborhood developing, you should think about it in terms of a human growing up. We see a human start out as an infant, then become a toddler, then become an adolescent, then become a teenager, then become a young adult, and on and on and on. If we leave someone when they're in the adolescent phase, and we come back and we see them again when they're in the teenage phase, they're going to look different, right? They're going to look different and be different and feel different. They are different, but they're not going to be unrecognizable to us. We're going to have seen them at a snapshot and now we see them at a more mature snapshot and we, we recognize the person. We, we see them. We identify with them. We understand who they are. We, we get that that's the same person. It doesn't seem unrecognizable to us. That's the standard as should be applied to our neighborhoods. We want our neighborhoods to actually become like more mature versions of themselves over time. We want someone who leaves and then comes back to look at that neighborhood and say, not only do I recognize it, not only is it recognizable to me, but the changes that have happened in this place have actually made it a better place. It's actually made it a more mature version of the thing that I left. But in order to have that, in order to experience that, there's another side to the dialogue. And that other side of the dialogue is the no neighborhood can be exempt from change. 
in order to experience neighborhood renewal, in order to experience growth, in order to experience uh, evolution of a place. And I'm going to go back to citizen as developer versus citizen versus developer. In order to alleviate that tension that we see from the zoning stasis and the capital being poured in, in order to alleviate that tension, we need to not have it manifest in large leaps in a few discrete places, but in a general maturing over time across a broad, broad area. That's what the second part of this looks like. Cities maturing over a broad area built by many, many hands, neighborhoods that are not exempt from change, but where change results in that next version, that next iteration of a becoming a better place. I understand how we got here in the conversation. I understand why a reporter would frame it this way. I'm a little bit disappointed that, you know, we're at this point in the conversation and we're still saying like these same old memes. I would invite all of you out there in Medicine Hat, I would invite all of you out there listening to this podcast, I would invite all of you having similar conversations around the country to go back to these two kind of insights. The first insight being we need to lower the bar of entry and allow citizens to be developers, allow our cities to be built by many hands, allow a lot of people to contribute to building our cities. And then we have to have the regulatory structure and the framework so that when those things are happening, when the widower widower is building the efficiency apartment, when we do get the accessory dwelling unit, when we are building the starter homes and the, the vacant infill lots, when we are doing these kind of things, that they are done in a way where neighborhoods don't experience radical, radical change, but where they are also not exempt from change. We have to get out of this mindset that all development is citizen versus developer with city council as arbiter. And we have to shift into a mindset of neighborhoods, not as kind of defensive bulwarks against the next bad proposal to come out of the planning department, but neighborhoods as places that organically evolve and change and mature over time. By the way, and I'm going to throw this out there for the Yimbis who I kind of, I hope I didn't badmouth you, but I kind of said that some of your more radical elements I'm, I'm just uncomfortable with. I'm going to throw this out to all of you. There is no way, zero, that we will solve a housing affordability crisis, a housing supply crisis, whatever housing crisis, however you want to define it, there is no way that that will be resolved by large developers with outside capital coming in and building large units over and over and over again. It will not solve the problem. It can't solve the problem mathematically. It will not solve the problem financially. It distorts the underlying market and creates a certain level of stasis throughout the community. When you only work in large leaps and you can only work in large leaps, so many things that would help are taken off the sidelines. This is not the solution to our problem. It might be part of a solution in some places, but it is not a solution to a problem. In a city like Medicine Hat, in a city like Norman, in a city like mine, in most places throughout most major cities, the strategy that is going to get us to something that alleviates that pressure and gets supply more in line with demand allows for 
affordable outlets uh, for all this tension allows for more units to be constructed at scale is to focus on a strategy of citizen as developer. How do we turn individual homes and individual neighborhoods by the, by the desire of the people who are there into opportunities to add more and more and more housing on our existing framework? If we do this, we not only can close that gap, we not only can make more housing that is more affordable, but we will be solving or, or alleviating a lot of other tensions that we see in our system. Most notably, the financial insolvency problem that is an urgent, urgent, urgent problem in our cities. If we can thicken up our neighborhoods and make better use of our existing infrastructure, if we can get more sewer ratepayers and water ratepayers and taxpayers on that same street, we are closing a massive productivity gap that is robbing our cities of capacity, driving them into insolvency. Not only that, there's a part of me that recognizes that within this framework, we can actually provide neighborhoods that are more compassionate, more moral, better places to live. When I think of that widow living by themselves, uh, needing some help shoveling their sidewalk, needing someone to check up on them and make sure that they're healthy and that they're okay, being there to maybe give them a ride to the doctor's office or the pharmacy or even the grocery store if they need it, uh, just having someone around to chat with. When we deny these opportunities to people through zoning, through top-down financial structures, by not allowing citizens to act as developers, we're doing something deeply damaging to ourselves, not just financially, but as people. I want us to reject this framing that all development has to be city versus developer. When you default to that, you're being overly simplistic. You're defaulting to something that is not the only option on the table. There's another option out there. There's a strong towns option. And it's an option that's going to get us to better places and more productive patterns of development and just a better quality of life. That's the strong towns approach. Thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Talk to you again soon. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.